So let's go ahead and get started. Turn with me to Psalm 16, and I'll pray while you're finding the psalm I have cheated and have a bookmark already. So, Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to begin our Lord's Day, opening our Bibles, looking to the prayers of David, thinking on grand and glorious things, Lord, that uh, help us to get our eyes off of this world and our eyes heavenward and our eyes toward our Savior, toward our God. Lord, I pray that this would be a time where we grow in holiness, grow in sanctification. The world around us just presses in on us, Lord, and makes it so difficult at times to focus solely on you. So I pray that you would help us this day, help this to be a full-orbed, glorious Lord's Day, where the word, the word of God overflows in our hearts and in our minds so that we are more like Christ. Thank you for this time that we have. Amen. So, I, David's Psalms, so far, you have seen this. Almost every one of them, he's in some sort of trouble, some sort of difficulty. And many times he's... Uh, running from Saul or he's running from Absalom, his son. And those seem to be uh, a common theme. Uh, Psalm 16 might be one of those. But each psalm that highlights the troubles of David, which so far has been most of them, it's like he has a different approach to, er- to the problem every time. And it's just slightly different. It's almost like pieces of a pie. And he just has different little slices of that pie. Sometimes his focus is to sing and praise the Lord. Other times, as we've seen in numbers of Psalms, his focus is on the coming vindication of God, the the righteous retribution that's coming, and that gives David hope. Other times, it's simply the place's trust so fully in the Lord that his goal is only to get a good night's sleep and that that's how he's going to express his trust in the Lord. And so he has all these different angles. And here in Psalm 16, he gives yet another angle. Another way that he presents to us to help the spiritual fight against anything and everything. Everything from oppression to depression, from not sleeping to always weeping to having a shocked mind or a shattered heart. Everything that that is very familiar to you, very familiar to us. And he gives another angle. And the angle here really is I think a good word for it is lofty. That it's lofty, it's it's pure, it's fundamental. What David is basically going to do is list, just make a list of the blessings he has in God. It really is, I think, lofty because he goes very clearly far beyond the troubles that he's in. Many of his psalms, he outlines the trouble. He even outlines his feelings about them. He outlines uh, how oppressed he feels. But, but this one's different. He just, he just rises above it. And so it's so lofty, he's going to flesh out really what Paul declares on our behalf in Ephesians 1.3 when Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. David's going to list some of those spiritual blessings. Just as an encouragement to his own soul in the midst of this time where he's in some sort of trouble. So we're going to read Psalm 16 and then we'll walk our way through it because there's quite a few blessings here that he gives us. Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Keep me, O God, for I take refuge in you. 
O my soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good without you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The pains of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set Yahweh continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. I've shared with you before that in our family for the past three decades or so, we spend New Year's Eve, or, or as close to it as we can get, um, in a time of listing all the major blessings that we remember um, from our family that year. And, and they, they become extensive lists. And we spend time in prayer for the, the next year as well. And just like all of you, uh, our family's no different. Every year, along with the blessings, we also have had uh, times of pain, some measure of surprise, suffering that we didn't anticipate, we didn't certainly ask for, uh, things that become memories that we would just as soon forget. But when we create this list and we share with one another what the Lord has done in the past year, I, I think every year without exception, we're, we're kind of surprised and amazed as we finally we put it all together. And the joy that we share when we do that is really pretty inexpressible. And it's so special to us. And we, we've enjoyed that tradition for such a long time. And even on a larger scale, that was the whole reason we began doing our celebration banquet here at Grace Bible Church. Uh, 10 years ago or so, uh, when I arrived at Grace Bible Church, there was really very little to celebrate because there was, there was pain, there was anguish, there was difficulty that the church had been going through for some time. So by faith, uh, the leadership scheduled the first celebration banquet for about a year later, just going by faith that the Lord would give us something to celebrate. And he has. And every single year he has. Every year we've seen the faithfulness of the Lord. So Psalm 16 really is, in a sense, a banquet of blessings. It's just a, a tremendous list of privileges that belong to every believer in Christ as we walk through a very difficult world toward the finish line of eternity. And so I've given some very basic labels to these. I've labeled these nine blessings we're going to look at with simple one-word tags. And I'm hoping that in the next few minutes, your hearts are warmed as you recall the vast blessings given to us as Christians. The first blessing we'll just call security. Security. In, in verse 1, David makes a request of God. He says, keep me, O God. And it's a verb that means preserve me, watch over me, don't let me die. It's, it's very, very basic. It's, it's not super spiritual. It's just, I don't want to die before I think it's time. Preserve me. This is an understandable prayer. Uh, whatever trials that David faced, very often it also included the threats to his own life. And so this, this is a reasonable prayer. But now he, he gives a reason. 
this connecting conjunction for I take refuge. This is, uh, this is hard for us to grasp, but David writes in a way to say, God, here's why you should keep me. It's like he's giving God his motivation. And that's actually a common uh, theme in the Psalms. But here's the motivation. God, here's why you should keep me. And the reason is, for I take refuge in you. To take refuge is the idea of shelter, of a fortress, a stronghold. It's, the, it's what you would run to in a, in a storm. It's a place of escape. This is an internal state of being. This is David's heart being protected from paralyzing fear, his mind being protected from pessimistic hopelessness. The end of verse 9 helps us with his state of mind. He says, My flesh also will dwell securely. So why is he saying, Keep me, O God, for I take refuge in you? This all goes back to the glory of God, to the, the reasoning that God should keep David safe. David is a king and all the nations around him know him and they know who he worships. And if David dies in some horrible rebellion or or some insurrection, all the nations around him are going to say, well, it looks like his God couldn't protect him. And so it's all about the glory of God. He says, keep me safe because the nations know that I'm following you, that I take refuge in you. But for us, I think this is what Paul had in mind in Philippians 4 when he declared that he had, and this is a stunning statement, that he had learned the secret of contentment. He says, in all circumstances, whether in want or or in plenty, and keeping in mind that in order to get to the imprisonment from which Paul wrote Philippians, he had to go through a series of ordeals over several years, beatings, humiliations, trials, riots, shipwrecks, snake bites, rejection by his own people. I think that's what David has in mind here, that similar sort of idea of I take refuge in you and so I'm secure. And he presents this declaration, I take refuge in you. This is a, a perfect verb in Hebrew. It means it's a continual action. It's something that is, that is ongoing in his life. It's not a one-time prayer. God, as of today, I take refuge in you. No, it's a daily practice for him. It's an internal state of being. The habit of dwelling in the security of God's care is really just that. It is a cultivated habit. Now, you all remember being little bitty kids and being terrified of something that is absolutely routine to you now. Uh, Terrified of crossing a street well i've seen some of your kids maybe they're they need to be more terrified of crossing the street but they learned and you learned that oh this is not that big of a deal i i want you to picture your life like this you have the storm all around you you have all the trials all the difficulties all the pains and it, and it just feels like it's coming upon you and at the moment that you go home to the lord it just stops and it's like the scene is frozen and you look around and go, oh, there's nothing left. There's nothing there. I believe, and I, I don't say this in a sinful fashion, but I believe there may be a sense uh, when you go to heaven of, I can't believe I was worried about anything. All this time I was so secure in the Lord and there I was fretting about this. It's like I'm the gold in Fort Knox and I'm worried that somebody's going to break in. You're in Fort Knox. You're secure. And I think that's a cultivated 
habit to run to the shelter in the storm. And how do you do that? Obviously, you do that in prayer. You do that in learning the word. And we're going to talk about that more in, in a moment. But what a blessing, just security. I mean, we could stop right there, and I think that's enough. But David gives eight more. Here's a second blessing, dependence. Dependence, and this is similar, similar theme. Verse two, oh my soul, and that, that little phrase there is provided for us by the translators, but it just starts in Hebrew. You have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord, I have no good without you. Now this is interesting. David begins talking to himself about himself. I don't know how many himselves are, are going on there, but basically what he says is, Look, Dave, at one time you said to God, you are my Lord, Adonai. You are my master. You are in charge. This is much more, though, than just the cultural Christian declaration. Oh, God is in charge of everything. And that's true. But generally speaking, when I hear people say that, it's still all about me as the focus. God is in charge of my plans for my life. God is in charge of my hopes and my dreams for myself. No, this is way higher than that. This is David reminding himself that he has no good thing apart from God, that God is the Adonai, God is the master, God is the Lord. What does that mean? It means that David's hopes and his dreams are secondary to his dependence on his master. He is a slave, God is a master. I want to have this sink in for a moment to you because this is the dependence of doing what David did, reminding himself, and this is you reminding yourself, when I came to faith in Christ, Christ became my what? My Lord. He became my Adonai, my master. And I don't have time to do a long study of slavery in the Bible, but slavery in the Bible is not an inherently morally bad thing. There were slaves that loved their masters so much that they asked to stay slaves because they were safe, they were fed, they were secure, they were dependent. And that's where we are. When you came to faith in Christ, you said, Christ is my Savior and Christ is my Lord. He's my master. He's the one who, uh, upon whom I depend. I think that one of the themes I hope I will remember to continue to proclaim is that the only peace that you have as a Christian is in total surrender and total submission. There's no such thing as a peaceful, unsubmissive Christian. That doesn't exist. David gives us this example of remembering you've already surrendered. You've already submitted. You already graciously ask God to, to graciously rather be your Lord. And so this is David giving us the example of just reminding yourself, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. You have said to Christ, you are my Lord. It's it's almost like he's reminding God that I'm just the slave and you are the master. I'm dependent on you. I don't think that's a bad prayer to pray every day, is it? You are my Lord this day. And I will follow after you to declare that total dependence. Here's a third blessing. We'll just label this one saints. Saints. Verse 3. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. I don't think we need to get theologically complex with this. The saints here, it refers to others who yearn and desire to follow the Lord. 
with all their heart, to love God with their whole lives. So what does David mean that they're the majestic ones? It's a Hebrew word that can mean the excellent ones, the magnificent ones. It's, it's royalty. They're, they're his favorite people. And listen, if you enjoy the fellowship of like-minded believers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And, and it's, don't, we don't say this much outside of these walls, but Christians are the best people in the world at every level because they're the only ones you can truly fellowship with at every level of human experience. They're the ones that you can walk through this life with a proper worldview, a proper lens of how to understand the world. And they're the ones you're looking forward to spending eternity with. Sometimes, and more than I care to tell you, but we do as elders have to do conflict resolution in our church at times. And one of the things we like to say is, look, you can work this out now or you can wait until heaven when God knocks your heads together because you are going to spend eternity together. You may as well start now. And that's a, that's a good uh, perspective. But these are the, the ones who are seeking to follow the Lord. And as David says, the ones who give us delight. What do saints do for you? I got out my iPhone and I set a timer for 30 seconds. And here's what I came up with in 30 seconds. They provide you an example. They pray for you. They weep with you. They rejoice with you. They hold you accountable just by their presence. They hold you accountable with their words. They sing with you. They listen to God's word with you. They serve the Lord with you. They walk with you in trials. They give to the Lord like you do. They have gospel concern for the lost like you do. They're heavenly minded like you are. They're the family of God on this earth like you are. There's so much that the saints have for us. This is why um, we cannot, I hate to put it this way, as a Christian, you absolutely cannot waste your life being around shallow or potentially false believers. You, You can't do it. People who are mildly interested in the life of serving Christ, that when you look at their life, you can see they're clearly living two lives. They're living their secular life and their their Christian life, and it becomes difficult to discern which is most important. You can't waste your life around cultural Christians. It's a waste of time. I'll give you an example. At Grace, uh, we have, over the years, had lots of new members who come from other churches Churches where they're surrounded by nominal, surface, potentially even fake believers. That that is now normal. I, I had a young pastor I was on the phone with recently. And uh, he, he's, a, he's a youth pastor. And he just mentioned, um, you know, you know how it is. You know, most of our parents don't actually go to church. They, they just send their kids to youth group. And, and if they do go to church, you know, they're, they're probably not really that interested in the Lord. And he said, you know how it is. That's just normal. I said, brother, that's not normal. That's normal in your church. And it's sad that you think it's normal. But the, the, you can't waste your life doing this. And so these new members that come to our church, you know what has never happened in all the membership interviews we've ever done? What has never happened is a new member has never said, I'm just so glad I languished for 20 or 30 years in a place where I was surrounded by people who weren't hungry for Christ. I, I'm so thankful for that. No one's ever said that. It's more of, why have I spent so much of my life around people who couldn't care less about following Christ? They're just churchy. Aren't you glad you don't have to walk through this life alone? I mean, uh, our, our church is big enough now. This little Sunday school class, and I know this is John's class too, this is a church size. 
I mean, we're, we're so blessed to have each other. You have so many people to choose from. We always have each other. And David celebrates this. They're the majestic ones. And all his delight is in them. Here's a fourth blessing. Simply worship. Worship. Verse 4. The pains of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. David's offended at the very thought of idolaters, those who waste their lives pursuing their idolatrous ways. It's abhorrent to him. It's disgusting to him. The implication here is that he's very thankful for the opportunity to be allowed to worship the one true living God. Now, I want to be very clear about this, and I think we've been clear in other contexts. Worship is for God. Worship is not, first and foremost, for you. Worship is the act of giving back to God prescribed actions giving adoration to Him for His glory. The reading of God's Word, the singing of hymns, the taking of the Lord's table, the fellowship of the saints, preaching the Word, listening to the preached Word, the giving to the Gospel work, that's all for God. But at the same time, when your worship truly from your heart is for God, and you're not just trying to seek some sort of emotional lift, which is what, unfortunately, worship is being redefined as, you do receive true solace and true comfort and true consolation and true support and true relief. So the way to think about this is just asking yourself questions like this. Have you read your Bible until your soul is soothed? Have you prayed until the peace that passes all understanding overcomes your worry? Have you sung until it's not just your mouth singing, but your heart is singing as well. One writer of prayer said this, that you have to pray until you're praying. You have to pray until you're praying. You've all had this experience. Don't deny it. Dear Lord, I just want to come to you today in prayer. 30 seconds later, I wonder if I paid the electric bill. Is that, did I put a stamp on that? What happened? And then you go, oh, I, what happened? Lord, I'm so sorry. He says, you pray until you're praying. Until you're praying. All these things are continually available. And please don't take that for granted because it cost the Lord Jesus Christ his life to make God available to you in worship. It cost him his life. And so David finds solace there. That's a blessing. Here's a fifth blessing. Inheritance. Inheritance. Verse 5, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. This is an amazing statement from David. It's as if he's asking the question, what's the best thing I get from God? What is my inheritance? What's my share of the estate, so to speak? And the answer is, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance. The believer has inherited God. He's your inheritance. He says the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. This speaks of boundary lines, that the boundary lines of David's inheritance have shown that what's inside those boundaries is glorious. If, if you've ever bought land or you've thought about that, 
you want to know what's on the land. You want to know what's inside the boundaries. If you're about to buy a lot and there's a beautiful stream and you find out from the surveyor that the stream is two feet outside your property, the lines have not fallen for you in pleasant places. They've fallen in bad places. But what David says is that, that what's inside those boundaries is glorious and what's inside those boundaries is nothing less than God himself. Let me put it to you this way. Do you ever take time in your mind's eye to walk around on the estate that God has, has deeded to you? The estate that's God's, that is your inheritance? Or to put it this way, to pinch yourself that your home is with the God who calls himself your father and calls you his son or calls you his daughter? It's an amazing truth. Jesus began his preaching ministry with a truth that I don't want, don't let this pass by quickly. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of what? Of heaven. Don't let the word kingdom pass by. This isn't the parking lot of heaven or the little building of heaven. The kingdom, theirs is the kingdom. We don't know anything about kingdoms. We see it in movies. We, we, we see it in fantasy novels. We see kingdoms. Uh, we read about England, but I mean, that doesn't seem like a real kingdom because it's just kind of odd to us that uh, people who don't actually do anything walk around with crowns on and that doesn't make any sense to us. But all that God has given to you in Christ is a kingdom. And so do you ever spend time just thinking, I want to walk around on the estate that is the kingdom that I've inherited. And on that estate is God himself. Or I put it to you this way, I dare you to contemplate and pray about your inheritance every day for a month. And to say, I'm going to take five minutes to just think on the things that are glorious that are coming that I've inherited. Over the past uh, couple of months, I've had a chance to speak to quite a few of you just asking this question, those of you who are listening to the Sunday evening millennium messages. And we're only 20% of the way through, and this is why I did a focus group with our BTI class before I started that so that we wouldn't preach Sunday evening down to just three people all with the last name Swartz. But here's what I'm hearing. And this is from mature believers, not, not brand new believers. I'm hearing this theme over and over again. My mind and heart is slowly being changed because my future in the glorious kingdom of Christ on earth is becoming so palpably real to me now that it's changed my mind, it's changed my heart. That's the whole point. That's why Paul said in Colossians 3 to set your minds where? On things above. To set your minds, to think about it over and over again. And so that's your inheritance. Here's a sixth blessing. Guidance. Guidance. Verse 7. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. Don't misinterpret this as some in the charismatic community do, and I've heard this frequently, that God gives magical, spontaneous revelation to, to you in the night and that somehow uh, whatever dreams you have, well, that's what the Lord was, was speaking to me and so forth. Um, you know, it's funny, I've never heard any Christian say, yes, the Lord gave me a dream last night and he said I'm a heinous sinner who's on my way to hell and I need to repent. Nobody ever says that. It's always the positive stuff. So don't, don't misinterpret that. The precursor 
to my mind instructs me in the night is I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. And if you read the body of work written by David, it is very clear what he means by God counseling him. It's giving him his word, giving him the content of revelation. David has saturated himself in God's word. And because of this, now his own mind is instructing him in the quiet of the night. The Lord bringing to mind the truths that have become a part of him. And now even his mind teaches him and reminds him. This is precisely what Paul is getting at in Romans 12 too. When he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. And here's the so that, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. What does Paul mean? It means that when you renew your mind in the word, saturated in the word, memorizing the word, reading the word, not doing this read one chapter a week thing that will get you nowhere, but when you're saturated in the word, your mind goes to the right places. Your mind knows what's right. You know what the will of God is, what is good, what's pleasing, what's perfect. Or if I could put it this way, as much as you will invest in the saturation of your mind in the truth, then your mind will instruct you drawing on that reserve of knowledge, drawing on that foundation of certainty. And by the way, not only will your mind instruct you, you're now capable of instructing others. Paul said in Romans 15, 14, that I'm convinced about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. Here's step one. Having been filled with all knowledge and being able to admonish or counsel one another. Because your mind's been saturated in the truth. And so you have guidance. I, I, I pity the Christian who says, I've been walking with the Lord for 40 years and then asks basic questions that frankly some of our ninth graders here could answer. I first of all blame the shepherds they've had over the years. But, but honestly, I've also seen Christians with terrible shepherds who still learn the word of God because they take it upon themselves. Here's a seventh blessing. One of my favorite words in the Bible, steadfastness. Steadfastness, verse 8. I have set Yahweh continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. This is an interesting picture because this is not a picture of God chasing after David. This isn't a picture of God stepping in front of David. It's a picture of David, and this is a very human picture placing God in front of him, having, making sure that God is not in my peripheral vision. God is not my co-pilot. God is my windshield, that he's right in front of me. And this picture of, of placing God, we're reminded of the same concept in other Psalms. Psalm 27, 8. On your behalf, my heart says, seek my face and your face, O Yahweh, I shall seek. Psalm 123 To you I lift up my eyes, the one enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a servant girl to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to Yahweh our God until he is gracious to us. What's the result? The result is that the strong believer who continually sets God before him, what does David say? He will not be shaken. He won't be shaken. It's a Greek word that means he won't be wobbly. He won't stumble. He won't totter. He he won't be on the verge of falling. Instead, his feet are steadfastly dug into the ground because he's placed God before him directly all the time, every day. I have set Yahweh continually before me. 
Somebody asked me a couple years ago, you know, I had trouble thinking about God. You know, sometimes I'll go days and days and I, I realize I didn't even think about God. What do you think that means? And I said, I think it means you're not a Christian, first of all, because I don't know a Christian that can wake up and not think about God. We, we have the Holy Spirit. There is a sense, however, that we can uh, place God in our peripheral vision and maybe take him for granted. And instead, we do what David does. And what am I going to do today that places Yahweh before me? What am I going to do that I will, uh, as it were, trip over God every step I take today? That's a great way to walk through life. Here's an eighth blessing. We're getting even loftier now. The eighth blessing is resurrection. Resurrection, verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. Now David goes beyond the realm of this life and he gives three assurances about resurrection. The first one, he says, my flesh also will dwell securely. That David is certain that his physical body won't be discarded for all time. That he won't just be a a dead, non-existent pile of bones for the next 10 million years. He won't cease to exist as a person. And if you know your Old Testament, this probably reminds you of Job's declaration Job said in Job 19.25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will rise up over the dust of this world. And in the next verse he says, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall behold God. That's a declaration of belief in resurrection. And there's a second assurance David gives, that God won't forsake David's soul to the grave. It's, It's similar. God won't forget about David. When he says, you will not forsake my soul to Sheol, to the, to the grave. He has certain confidence in resurrection. And he expresses this in an even loftier way in the third assurance. That you will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. Now what is this? Now as the chosen king of Israel, David is in a sense the Holy One. But David here is ultimately now looking for his hope to the one who would die and not see corruption, the one who would not decay, the one who would not be left in the grave. I'm very confident that David was aware of his prophecy here, a a prophecy which Paul, uh, preaching in the synagogue of Pisidian Antioch, he explained what David was talking about. And he's explaining that David was speaking of Christ. And a little side note here, don't ever think that Old Testament prophets are somehow in some hypnotic trance and they have no idea what they're writing. If you look at Psalm 110 verse 1, David knows who Christ is. He knows that he is his Lord and he knows that his Lord will be descended from him. So he has these things in mind prophetically from the Lord. So this isn't just David in some trance saying, oh, I think I'm the Holy One. Oh, the Holy One's actually Jesus. No. That's not the case at all. But Paul tells us what's actually true. And I, I want to read you a section of this sermon that Paul preaches in Pisidian Antioch. And I'll just pick it up in Acts thirteen twenty nine. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll just read it to you. When they had finished all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree, that's the cross, and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people, and we proclaim to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, in that He raised up Jesus, 
as it is also written in the second psalm, today, or you are my son, today I have begotten you, but that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and faithful loving kindnesses of David. And here it is. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not give your holy one over to see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers and saw corruption. In other words, when David was buried and he's still there, his, his bones, whatever's left, a pile of dust at this point, He hasn't been resurrected yet. He saw corruption. Paul goes on, but he whom God raised did not see corruption. So David's now taking this even a step higher. That David has the hope of resurrection, but he knows that his hope of resurrection lies only in the certainty of the resurrection of the Holy One. And by the way, what's amazing about that, this is David prophesying of the resurrection of Christ a thousand years before it happened. That's his hope. In fact, David begins verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. This is a verb that is properly translated in the future tense. What does that mean? There's nothing complex about this. David's saying, when I am in my final moments, when my heart is about to stop, when my breathing is about to stop, in that moment, the pathway to life, the pathway to home will open to me. That's pretty hefty theology for a guy who lived 1,000 years before Christ. When David needs the guidance of God through his own death, God will take him by the hand and raise him up and bring him home. One more blessing. The ninth blessing is just simply God. The ninth blessing is God. Verse 11, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. God himself is the ultimate blessing and David gives two mind-blowing truths here. They're they're just beyond comprehension. First of all, merely being in God's presence will bring joy in the fullest measure possible. Fullness of joy. Let me put it to you this way. When David says fullness of joy, think about the most heart-bursting happiness you've ever experienced in this life. Those moments where for, for a moment, for a day, maybe for a couple of days, everything is right. Everything is in place. These are once every few years, if even that. Some people never experience this because life is difficult. But that moment, put it together as what you always experience all the time. That's fullness of joy. That's a mind-blowing truth. Here's a second mind-blowing truth. David pictures God as having his his right hand extended out. And in his hand are pleasures. It's a word that means delights or lovely things forevermore. The ESV says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In either case, this is speaking of the eternal delights of God. Now, I want to be very precise here because we're talking about our infinite God. It's possible to misinterpret this um, in too lowly a fashion. This is not simply speaking of the fact that the pleasures that God has in store for us, and we could list things like the new heavens, the new earth, new Jerusalem, fellowship on, in eternity, all that eternity holds in the future. This is not just that those things last forever, although they do. But that's not what he's talking about here. Listen very carefully. It's more that 
the pleasures of God are added forever. They're added forever. And this must be the case. Why must it be the case? God is infinite in nature. It's our eternal privilege to know Him more and more. If He's infinite in nature, and we're going to know Him more and more, then we will continue to know Him more and more ad infinitum, into eternity. There will never be a time when you stop marveling at the glorious aspects of God that are new and delightful and no amount of revelation, no numbers of pleasures revealed will decrease the total that's yet available to you. At that point, we stop being able to understand and theologically we just hit a wall and say, I just trust you, Lord, that that's the way it's going to be. But I want to tell you what our brother Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, the proper study of the Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the doings, and the existence of the great God which he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can comprehend and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-contentment and go on our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, he calls it, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depths and that our eagle eye cannot see its heights, we turn away with the thought, I was born yesterday and know nothing. When David says, In your right hand there are pleasures forever, It means that in 10 trillion years, you are still discovering the delights of God and there is no lack of reservoir. You haven't made progress, if I can put it that way. And all that we receive from God in the future, all that we learn from God in the future, David calls them pleasures in his right hand. They're all for you. They're all for the taking. And they're all for eternity. When we list those blessings out, I can see why David was able to say in Psalm 4.8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Yahweh, make me to abide in safety. You just go through that list and you sleep. That's what he says. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this psalm. How encouraging. Our, our brother David wrote this 3,000 years ago. And yet here we are benefiting from the Spirit's writing And we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.